1: Those individuals that don't wait for permission. Leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in a new world environment. These are their stories.
0: Yasmin Poole is an award-winning speaker, writer, and youth advocate. She's currently Plan International's national ambassador she frequently appears on prominent Australian media programs to discuss the role of diversity and social change. She's a non-executive board director of Oz Harvest, Australia's leading food rescue charity. There's a list of awards that she's won over the last five years, which is just absolutely exhausting. We're going to find out more about this remarkable Australian entrepreneur, thinker, and good person, Yasmin Poole. Let's go.
1: Bill, it is so wonderful to be with you today. I am really excited about today's guest for series four, but before we get into it, how is Sydney treating you at the moment, Phil?
0: Well, look, it's early spring as we're recording at the moment, it's 27 degrees outside and I'm aware that where you are right now, it's not.
1: Yes, of course, you like to rub in the weather here in Melbourne. But my understanding is it rains more in Sydney than it does here. And our only challenge right now is that our lockdown looks far more attractive than your normal lockdown on a normal day.
0: Uh, look, sunshine, the most uh, sunshine. Yes, there's a name, isn't it? Name.
1: <laughs> well, enough of this nonsense. Yasmin, we are so excited to have you with us today. Uh, it is a real honour for us to be able to encounter such a dynamic human and individual on the Australian landscape. I'm going to launch straight into it, Yasmin. The very first question is one that we ask all of our listeners. And that question is, tell us a little bit about your own story. How have you gotten to where you are today?
2: Yeah, I think it's, um, it's a big question because there's so many moving parts and pieces in my story. But in terms of the journey so far, I think it really um, harked back to my gap year. And I just graduated from high school and had moved down to Melbourne and was without my friends and really had no real idea of what I wanted to do. And I remember I was working full time retail, making $12 an hour, you know, coming back home every day and thinking, God, this isn't really all my gap years cracked up to be. What do I actually want to do with my life? And this is coming from a low income background. So I couldn't, you know, didn't have the luxury to go travel and, and all that kind of stuff. So I thought, okay, you know, what can I do? And I stumbled across two youth-led NGOs, which was the Australian Youth Climate Coalition Oak Oaktree. And I thought, you know what? I've got all this spare time after work. I'm just going to go there for a couple of hours per week, just see what happens. So I did. And what was really amazing about that experience is that it was the first time I'd really seen an organisation led by and for young people. And these were hundreds and hundreds of young people lobbying, um, creating campaigns, really dictating the narrative of what they wanted to see changed. And as, as someone that just got out of high school, that was the first time I'd seen a movement like that. And it was the first time really that I saw leadership that didn't look like the very kind of conventional leadership you'd often see. You know, the one when you look at parliament, the kind of same demographic, Right. So for me as an 18-year-old, it was really the first time where I thought, oh, I can actually just start now. So from there, it really was the snowball effect because I I started thinking more and more about the power of young people and the fact that young people are so open-minded and empathetic and risk-taking, but they also have their own lived experience and it was something that I started to explore for myself as a young woman of colour and trying to figure out what that means. So that was... um, you know, kind of a really the start of my journey. Never since then, it's it's been this um, amazing push to engage young people in politics and, and young women, and really mobilise the power of young people to make a better Australia.
0: Yasmin, it's um it's it's fantastic hearing you talk about that decision that you made, and and it's been one of the things that we've looked at through this series, and 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 talking to young entrepreneurs about taking that first step. Can I ask you to go back to that moment that you just mentioned about the, I can do this and talk us through how you felt and talk us through what you did to make it real.
2: I think to talk about the, I can do this moment, I have to talk about a previous experience that led me to even realize that because I think being in those youth led NGOs um, was kind of the cherry on top of me coming to that realization, but it was more of a process. So for me, it actually rooted back in year 11 when I did a public speaking speech about my mother and I talked about her experience as a Muslim migrant. This was 2014, so it was when ISIS was dominating the headlines, and there was a lot of casual statements like thrown around, even on school, being like, I don't think Muslims should be let into the country, and all that kind of nonsense and as a high school student that made me feel really disempowered but what was transformative about this one public speaking speech was that I decided to talk about it and it was the first time I had ever taken that experience and really used it as a source of strength and agency so the reason why I talk about that and how it connects to the moment where I realized I could make a difference is I realized that my lived experience could be powerful and it could help other people. And I saw these organisations that were built by young people and I thought that's something that needs to happen to not only me, but all young people to really step into their experiences and, and think, how can I use this as a source of strength to make a difference? So I think that was really the foundation of what led me to realise that I could make an impact. And you know, ever since then, it's gone on to really cool opportunities like leading the Victorian Government's Youth Congress, advising the Minister for Youth, around what we wanted to see changed and really exploring the the power of young people and thinking differently.
1: I wanna keep exploring this kind of line of conversation a little bit here, Yasmin. In in a 2020 article about inspiring women uh, of um, ANU, you mentioned your mother as being a massive influence on you. Can you share with our listeners a little bit of an insight because you just mentioned her a moment ago into your mother and what it is in particular about her that continues to influence and inspire you?
2: I think my mum's experience was the first time I had ever seen what discrimination and oppression looks like. And this is speaking as um, growing up in primary school. And I grew up in a rural area in, a, in Australia where even my mum's skin colour was often um, you could just tell with the way that people engaged with her, you know assuming that she couldn't speak English, um, and treating her differently was something I really felt acutely. I remember people in primary school um, you know would, it was a cultural day, and and she was showing her Malay culture to the class and with the traditional outfits and people were laughing in the back and it, it was something that I, I felt really acutely. So I think there was that part. The discrimination part that has really stuck with me because it's not only discrimination it's the sense of of vulnerability you feel exposed you feel powerless and that's something that's really stuck with me and i think the second thing is also growing up um, again from a low income background i saw that the idea of merit isn't always as clear as it seems and my mom is right now she's a nurse um, my family lost their business after the global financial crisis and she went on to, you know, she was, she was working for the business, but when that basically fell over, um, went back to higher study, was juggling a master's degree while taking care of three kids, um, doing a placement. Uh, And yet the payment for nurses, especially during COVID still remains really low. And I saw that sacrifice and that struggle. So, it was the hardship part, I think, first that, that made me realize that the concept of fairness isn't always as clear as we can see. But it also encouraged me that, in a way, she's everything that's great about Australia a migrant woman that has put in so much hard work and effort to care for her kids and does that every single day, you know, often without thanks and appreciation, um, but has contributed so much to Australia and caring for Australians and their health. And that's something that I think really resonates with me, you know, doing it, doing it, not for the thanks necessarily, but doing it because it's the right thing to do. Yeah, I I think
1: that's becoming coming across really loud and clear that this is ultimately about the other and and not only honouring your heritage uh, and that of your parents and their past, but those who will follow. In 2019 the Australian Financial Review listed you as the youngest nominee for the 100 women of influence. What a great great little honor that it is. I shouldn't say little that's being too dismissive. It's fantastic. In the same year the Australian uh, uh, the Asian Australian Leadership Summit included you in their 40 under 40 most influential Asian Australian awards. In fact, I could go on and list so many more organisations that have recognised you by placing a spotlight on your contribution as a dynamic young woman and Asian Australian of significant influence. So I've been sitting here listening to you talk about Mum and her journey and the blatant racism that she encountered and why that continues to burn inside of you about how it needs to be different. Knowing all of that and seeing your profile continue to emerge on the Australian landscape, you've had opportunities on um, platforms like Q&A and The Drum to to really talk about cultural representation and why that is important and and also gender representation. Can you tell me what, what responsibility do you feel in this important space of cultural inclusion and gender equality?
2: It's a responsibility that I feel so deeply that it can't be disconnected from my work ever, to be honest. And I remember, I mean, the reason why, you know, focusing on gender and race is, again, because of my lived experience. Um, and that's that's powerful because I use those experiences of racism that my mother faced as actually a foundation for my strength, that when I'm going into places that, you know, are, are not representative or places that are dismissive of, of young women and young people, and I've experienced both racism and sexism throughout my journey, it's those experiences that, keep that fire burning within me. But I remember when I was, it was my 21st birthday and I was doing a speech at Parliament of Victoria to young women of colour about, um, you know, politics and government and, and, and agency and all that kind of thing. And as I was talking, I looked around the the walls and I saw all these portraits of old white dudes, <laughs> not a single portrait of a woman or a person of colour. And I thought, wow, you know, this is such a historic um, exclusion of these amazing women that were sitting right in front of me, passionate, eager, motivated, yet for so long have been kept out of these spaces. So for me, it's a responsibility that it's not just me speaking for Yasmin, it's speaking for all the young women that don't get to have a voice right now in these national conversations, you know, for all the people of color that look at the TV and never see themselves represented, that's what it means. And I think it's, it's an enormous privilege. It's not something that scares me because I think about me growing up as a young, as a young person, even in primary school and switching on the TV and you just never see people like yourself and you don't even realize it um, until you see people like yourself. And then you, then you think, wow, that, that person's like me. So it's something that I've, has really just been an honor more than anything.
0: Yes, in our, in our conversation that we had just uh, just before we began recording, we talked about the notion of graduate outcomes and, and how from the research that we've been doing at Circle over the past decade and, and, and into the work that a School for Tomorrow is doing, we talk about six particular ways in which we want education to influence the outcomes of young people. And the one we've chosen for you, of course, is good person. Yeah, And, and, and if, if you bear with me for a moment, I just want to tell you what, what this means for people all over the world. So when we talk to families and we talk to teachers and we talk to kids all over the world, they tell us that they want their kids to be people of good character, competency and wellness, to have a coherent set of values and beliefs that guide them to do the right thing. They want them to be grounded in authenticity that helps them understand how individuals and communities construct their sense of identity, their values, their ethics, to create civic performance, moral character in themselves and in others, to be disposed towards building the duty and self-discipline required for a purpose-driven and virtuous life. And then finally, to reflect on the relationship between their integrity and their character. Already in everything that you're saying, to us, I can see this absolutely all over. I don't want to I don't want to embarrass you too much by gushing too too much around. I want to ask you two questions if I can. One which is about the role of schools in helping to produce people of good character. What role do you think that schools can play in encouraging this type of development in young people?
2: I think that every young person wants to be good in whatever they decide to do aspirationally i think we all desire this sense of good but i think a way that schools can do that better is that so often the way that education is taught is by telling someone what to do so you know i would there would be you know in in school it would be you know do this you know be this um, embody this but i think the more effective way of really building goodness in young people is When they feel heard and when they feel safe enough to share their stories and what they are passionate about and what they care about because I think going out into the world if all you've been taught is how to listen well there's a lot of negativity and things that are done wrong in this world and if it's always if it's just purely about listening to what others think then that can go down a path to you know uphold the same kind of structures and, and societal problems that we that we have right now. So when I think about goodness, I think it's it goes beyond that as well. Goodness, there's good in being able to challenge what's wrong. So I think there's power in schools giving young people the space to explore what they care about and how they can do good in those spaces. And I think about even things like civics class and the way that it's currently taught, which is often how many MPs are in the House of Representatives and that kind of thing. But I think there's a lot more power in asking, what do you think needs to be changed and how do we get there? And letting young people explore that idea of what good could look like instead of always just um, listening to what's being taught. So I think really giving young people the space to, to actually be good people, which I know sounds a bit silly, but um, that's certainly that I, something that I think you know, drove me during high school.
0: Yeah, look, I think it's one of those things that's really interesting. Um, in, in, in a whole bunch of schools, you'll find that uh, young people are anointed as leaders, and they're not allowed to lead. Um, um, you know, it's uh, we, we 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 talked in an earlier series with one of our game changers, Conrad Wolfram, and and talked with him about uh, changing the way people see mathematics. And essentially, his his fundamental argument is get kids um, doing computation about real tangible, meaty problems much earlier and much younger so that they can rehearse that sort of sense of voice and that sort of sense of agency using, in his instance, computation. And I'm taking it in, in, in your instance, it's, it's, it's talking about that sense of um, advocacy and agency. Why is advocacy so important to you? Why, why do you need for your voice to be heard and why do you need to advocate for the voices of others?
2: I think it goes back to that phrase when it's like, if not me, who, or something, it's like, if not, if not me, when, or or something along the lines of essentially, I think the point is, you know, if I'm not contributing to this conversation, who will be filling that gap? And when we think about the, again, the people that are contributing, it's certainly not diverse and representative across the board, you know, across politics, across media. So for me, in a way, Advocacy is part of who I am because to exist in this world, um, from you know across different things like you know low income and gender and race, in a way you are advocating for yourself every single day. Um, to be a leader, you are inherently pushing back and advocating. So it's not even something that I felt was a conscious choice. I didn't grow up and say I want to be an advocate, but it's I guess a defiance and a and a sense of empowerment. In my, in my desire to to make a difference in whatever space that I could, that led me to engaging in advocacy. But I've never really seen it almost as a title. It's just kind of like, it's almost like breathing, which sounds a bit silly, but that's just how it feels.
1: What's really struck me in this conversation is this deep courage that you have, a courage that is often squashed by an Australian public around the notion of tall poppy syndromes. And what I'm hearing really profoundly in this conversation is the profoundness of vulnerability and saying, this is who I am. This is where I've come from. It's time that people stand up and sit up and realize that uh, I'm as significant, as worthy as anyone else. And and that we all have a place around that table to to have a, a dialogue and a discourse that is rich and dynamic purposeful and intentional about the type of future we want to create. Can you you share with Phil and I, and particularly our listeners, a little bit about how do you sit in that uncomfortableness of vulnerability so frequently?
2: The reason why I felt so comfortable with vulnerability is that I realized that vulnerability really is a strength. And by that, I mean, as a young person, young people don't necessarily have the qualifications or the quote-unquote life experience. We haven't been around for decades and decades and decades. But we have had our own experiences in our own lives that have experienced hardship and injustice, but also love and joy and things that make the world really great. But with all of those things, there's power in that. Because especially as young people, so often our experiences aren't listened to, I remember when I was in Youth Congress and it was 20 young people and one of them had experienced homelessness. And for the first time, he was given the platform to talk about his experiences in that system. And the same went for other people on on the committee, those that experienced mental health issues, those that were disabled on the committee as well. And for the first time, young people were actually given the chance to express their hardships um engaging with these kinds of institutions and instead of that being something that was disempowering it was incredible you could see the transformation of young people in the beginning when they were disillusioned versus given the tools and also being heard to express you know their experiences so for me vulnerability is a tool to break down barriers it's authenticity in sharing in sharing experiences in a way that Cuts through the noise, and I remember when I was on Q and A the first time back in twenty eighteen, and there were you know, politicians arguing about policy and the left and the right, whatever. And I talked about my experiences, financial hardships of my family, and how all my siblings had to sleep in one room in the living room, and how it would all be squished up like sardines. Now, that's not a political point. That's that was an experience in my, in my life. So. I think, if anything, we're really craving more vulnerability in being able to talk about these issues. Because when we talk about education and leadership and all of that kind of stuff, it's, it's not abstract. It reflects back into people's experiences and, and the way that you know Australia and our systems operate. So to be able to humanise that is powerful. So I've always seen it really as a tool to, to break down those walls. And I think that's, that's where the power lies.
0: Yes, and the, the, there are four broad competencies that we talk about that, that help people to think about how they might be thriving in their world. And a lot of this conversation, we've talked about leading, which is one of them, and we've been talking about living, which is another one. I want, if I can to just move into the area of, of learning and, uh, and of academic development in particular. You've been an AVCAT scholar. You've been a Hawker scholar at the ANU. Tell me about the role of academic development in... Your life and tell me what are you curious about
2: yeah it 's interesting i 've had a mixed a mixed bag of, of my experience in academics because for me the way that I think is so fast paced and very broad the way that i the way that I view innovation and inclusion has links everywhere really it 's not just inclusion it's it 's how can inclusion Be part of social change and what does social change look like. So in one sense, I think my experience in in academics has been a little, it's not necessarily frustrating, it's just a different way and mode of thinking. Um, and in a way that's been kind of nice to learn about the, the the hard skills, you know, the research and the writing and things that you just don't get from tossing ideas around in a room. But it hasn't always fulfilled that, that style of learning that I really do love. But in saying that, I think there are positive advancements in university. And I'm doing a course right now where it's a course that can be taken by any discipline across ANU. So I'm with engineering students, I'm with geography students, I'm with English literature students, you name it, we're all there. And the topic is all around complexity and unraveling complexity. And we're having academics from different backgrounds every week um, talk about their, you know, the way that they view complexity. And I just learnt from a visual arts professor and the week before, you know, we were learning about a history professor and what evolution, you know, looks like and, and how what adaptation means. So it was that I think that's really struck me because it is very different to the very isolated learning model that universities usually use. And it's something that suits me a lot better because young, I think the ex- expectation young people will graduate with a degree and just stay in that career is pretty outdated and just really far from reality. So if anything, that general approach is, is at least in the beginning, I think is, is quite powerful to allow young people just the chance to explore. And to figure out what, what resonates with them and, and what doesn't. So I've really been enjoying that.
1: Uh, I'm loving hearing this dynamic young young person discuss what continues to enthuse you and, and what you're curious about. And, and there's no end to it, which is really exciting. Uh, recently, Yasmin, I, I wrote uh, an open letter to all year 12s in particularly the state of Victoria because they are the ones who are are doing this in, in in such a a manner that is totally foreign to them their teachers and have been heroic through this entire process as well as the teachers who have pivoted to a kind of new delivery model and part of this this message that I sent to them was that I happened to reference the statue of David by Michelangelo and one of the things I wrote in there was this notion that Michelangelo kind of broke away from the traditional way of representing David because David had been represented in so many other ways by other artists prior to, of course, Michelangelo. And he does not present David as the winner. He actually presented David at the point prior to victory, at the point in the instance where an individual decides and makes a choice and commits to an act on that choice. What I'm really interested in was when was the moment for you where you decided that your truth, your story was worthy, was valuable, when did you decide at what point, what was that tipping point? What was that moment like when you said, I've now made the decision?
2: That's a fantastic question. I think for me, it has to be Q&A because everything leading up to that um, while I was still doing advocacy, it was still pretty under the radar. And the reason for that is that I thought if I want to get a public service job or whatever, you know, you, you kind of have to hold your tongue and keep quiet. So everything that I, I, I was using social media, but it was in a very kind of um, careful way. And I, and I didn't really divulge into my own experiences.
0: I just, I just want to interrupt for the sake of our international listeners. Q&A is a, it's on our public broadcast television Network uh, screens once a week, and it's a moderated panel discussion in front of a live audience who ask questions, sort of a range of different people who give answers. Please carry on.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so when I was when I got the call that I would be on the show, it was. A conscious decision for me because for the first time I was really taking the plunge I think they I don't know how many viewers but they said they said it was like a million or something crazy just a number that I couldn't even comprehend so I had it I was at a crossroads I could either stick with the careful route and play it very safe and say it in a way that might you know get some you know some people agreeing but not really make much of an impact or I could just go in and own it And that includes talking about my experiences. And that also includes calling out politicians where I see it. And to me, it was kind of a no brainer, as scary as it was. So I remember sitting there and it was, they were about to go on air and I saw the big camera and I knew what I was saying was going to be heard by so many more people in the audience. And again, it, it tied back to what kind of person did what I wanted to have seen growing up. And young Yasmin would have loved to see a young woman on that show, being able to give it back to politicians that so often just really don't care to listen to young people at all. So I did. And from there, it really was something that I just couldn't get go back from because it felt really right, to be honest. And it felt true to me. And I think that was the most important part because when I started university, you think about leadership and there's obviously CV and thinking about prestigious jobs, but it's it means something different when you find something that feels true to who you are. And it felt true to me.
0: That's a fantastic response. It's a, a, really appreciating uh, the way in which you're, you're um, sharing such personal and important information. You know, for so many of our listeners who are educators, part of the aim of what we're trying to do, particularly with this series of game changes, is to shine a light on people who are, just entering into the world and doing amazing things so that the educators themselves can reflect on their own practice and ask themselves good questions about what it is that i could be doing to help develop this type of person i'm really interested in your work what is the work of an advocate i know that you are the national youth ambassador for plan international i know you sit on as a non-executive director on, on boards and things like that but what is your work
2: My work is so many different things. It really changes every single day. I think there's not um, one kind of task where it's like going to the office and doing a nine to five. So, um, you know, on, on one front, it's a lot of public speaking and a lot of speaking on panels to a whole bunch of different people from young students all the way up to business professionals. But what is fantastic about those conversations is that for me, it always comes down to systemic issues you know systemic i always bring it back i was talking on an international relations panel only two days ago and it when we talk about international relations growing up and and as a university student it's always in the abstract But I was talking about engaging with Asia and asking, well, why are less than 5% of our current ambassadors people of colour? Why are we engaging with Asian Australians? And again, to really um, to push back on the conventional ways that we talk about these problems. And the same goes for inclusion and whatnot. So really kind of pushing audiences to hear the more authentic side and the the reality of, of what these issues may actually really represent. So there's a lot of that. Um, and then on the other side, as you mentioned, there's the campaign. So with Plan International, um, I was recently helping them launch a COVID-19 research report that is written by young young, young women, entirely by young women, that envisions what a, COVID, what a future after COVID looks like. And it's one built on inclusion and compassion and empathy, which seems like a bit radical and almost a little bit naive. But I think that there's a lot of power in being able to actually bring those words back into public policy, because it's, it's the right thing to do, to be quite honest. So I do a lot of work in that space as well. And and really, I guess, championing their message and the role of engaging young women. And as you mentioned, as well, you know, on boards, which has been kind of a new experience for me being in rooms with very, you know, senior and fantastic Um, business professionals and for me it was almost a little bit of you know I was like I'm you know why am I here but I, I go back to the importance of looking at things with a different point of view and I think that is the power of young people because we've grown up without so much exposure to structures so we're able to say hang on that doesn't look right let's push back and challenge that in a way that it's harder to do I think when you're older when it's always existed for such a long time, so yeah, doing doing board work as well. So yeah, a bunch of different stuff, whether it's writing or speaking or or with organisations, it always looks a bit different.
0: Yes, and I'm going to ask you about how we apply this for schools in a moment. I quickly want to ask you: Have you ever found? Can you think of a, a, an example in one of these situations where you've challenged? with lots of intensity and then got an answer and went, Oh, hang on, perhaps they're right after all. How do you how do you temper that that sort of enthusiasm with the capacity to change your mind on the basis of evidence that's presented?
2: Well, I think it's it's less about evidence. If there's something that I pride myself on, it's being able to be quite fair. And if I'm making a strong point, I like to think I have justification. It's not just me, you know, ranting. There's usually some basis, but there was one time when I was doing it um, on a panel and they were talking, it was a lot of public servants that were in the audience. And I was talking all about, you know, challenging the system and and, and embracing your vulnerability. And, and I had someone that was a public servant and they put their hand up and they said, well, you know, I'm entry level. How do I do that? And I was like, Oh well, <laughs> you know, you can you can try, but it's it's so much harder, I guess, in an institution that is pretty bureaucratic and has pretty, you know, pretty strong barriers and, and kind of a hierarchy there. And I could talk so passionately about the value of of again pushing against those barriers, but maybe it wasn't the best advice to someone that was in quite a you know, just starting out and maybe that would put them, you know, make them vulnerable and um, you know, not, not lead to promotions and whatnot. So those those experiences are tricky because I still really believe in my message but there are still places where it, it's all well and good to talk about this stuff but it's a lot harder in practice and I think I'm still kind of trying to figure out I guess how how to how to make that message effective for people that operate in spaces that it is a lot harder to make change and I, I think I'm still kind of working through that because it, it's really challenging and difficult so that kind of got me to think back a little and try to contextualize what I was saying because I think it's important to remember that I am a young person and I am unconstrained I'm at university and I have the liberty to go and say whatever I want and that others don't have that necessarily that opportunity so that's something that's um, I guess got me thinking about how we can still make change within our institutions themselves.
0: Thank you. That's a really interesting example. and I want to follow that up and talk about schools because schools can be that type of place, which incredibly caring and and, and they, they do a pretty good job around building the character and competency and wellness of wellness of, of students as they're growing and providing them with safe places to take increasing risks and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But they can also be, be pretty constraining. So here's the opportunity. What advice can we give to schools about preparing students who are ready to take on roles as advocates. What can we do to help schools to be the sort of places that allow advocates to develop?
2: I think it's by genuinely hearing and valuing the feedback and thoughts of students. So like we mentioned, you know, somewhat in the beginning, there can be leadership roles where you're given the nice title, but you're expected to do what the school tells you to do. And there's not much space in terms of what you actually want to see changed. But I think the real power, and this is again when we're talking about the inflexibility of other institutions, is that schools can change that. I mean, the young young people are right there. So to, I guess, actively seek feedback from, and whether that be through, you know, an advisory committee of young people, or whether that involves just going out, you know, into classrooms and having a chat and seeing how students are feeling, because I think often students do have legitimate concerns or or not even concerns, actually, just ideas for how to either, you know, improve what's going on at school or, or a campaign or just something that they're passionate about. And I think really the most powerful things that schools can do is to really legitimize that. And I remember the principal of of my high school, Brian Grimes, and one of the best things he ever did for me is after that public speaking speech I talked about about my mom, he was listening because I, I did it at. One of the school events, and he came up to me afterwards, and he said, "Wow, that was amazing." And he, I remember he said, "I had goosebumps." And then he said, "Do you mind if I send that speech to the um, to the local federal MP? I think it's really important that he reads it." And that no one had ever said that about anything that I've said. No one ever came up to me and said, "Wow," and especially not my principal, the senior, the most senior person in the school. But he looked me in the eye, and I. I felt that he cared. So if we can replicate that experience across other students ex- expressing their views, I think that that could do a whole world of good.
0: Uh, that sounds just like Brian Grimes to me. He's a, he's a good friend of mine and, and, and uh, we've done quite a lot of work together over the years. Adriana, you've got a question. I'm
1: really interested in what does Yasmin do to switch off? Because I'm sitting here listening to this this young individual that is blessed with courage, fearlessness, there was too many nessnesses in that, uh, fearlessness, and a real verve for living. What do you do to switch off?
2: Well, I'm not very good with hobbies, but that's also because of lockdown. So I feel like there's really not much I can do in my room. Um, I'm really passionate about music. And this isn't necessarily that I'm fantastic. I actually used to be a busker growing up, believe it or not, which is seems like a different world. Actually, it's it's almost somewhat similar to my public speaking, but this was back at eight-year-old Yasmin playing the guitar in front of IGA. But um, now I think I, I, love, I love listening to music and I love the way that music really connects to the soul. And I think one day I'd love to start doing music production just on the side for fun and, and use that as an outlet for creativity. So I, think, I think, think that's part and just kind of exploring what, what music means and how it can mean so many different things and how it really speaks to your own life and experience. And I think that's awesome. And then the second thing has to be just my friends. And, you know, thank God for Zoom and thank God for the internet because most of them are up in ANU enjoying a life without restrictions and no masks. Um, but I think they just remind me that, you know, sometimes I can get so consumed in this stuff, but I think it's great because they just see me for me. They don't see necessarily just the work or everything I'm doing. They just see Yasmin. And that's just really nice to just be comfortable with them and just to 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 chill. So I think both of those things.
1: I think listeners would be really interested and intrigued to know about the world of Mensa. I think I've got that. I've got this right. That in two thousand and ten, you were accepted into Mensa International, right? That's right. Yeah. So, um, can you give us a little bit of an insight into this kind of world because it's only for a certain percentage of, of, of humans, and uh, I'm sure many of us are very intrigued about what would a Mensa event look like. <laughs> That is so funny.
2: You mentioned that you are the first ever person that has, has seen the Mensa thing and has actually asked about it. Um, I mean, to be honest, look, I don't do that much, um, actual interaction with them anymore. It was back in year seven, I think, or when, you know, my mom, she just, she was like, you know, take an IQ test and just see, um, you know, just, I think she could see that, you know, back then I was very, um, very like perceptive to to the world so that led to me getting into menza which was i had no idea what that meant (laughs) i was just a 12 year old i was thinking about you know justin bieber and all the things you do when as a high school student Um, but what was really interesting about that space is that you know despite intellect i think intellect is you know that was great but it's also um quite actually difficult to navigate those spaces. Um, and I even remembered in high school to try to, to try to navigate that because I think um, it's almost like the perceptiveness can can in the beginning be recon- difficult to reconcile, especially as a teenager. So yeah, I mean to be honest, look, I've less engaged with that space, but it was quite a yeah, I mean an interesting interesting experience to be part of. And I think they do do good work around supporting and financially financially supporting young people. Um, to pursue you know whatever they're passionate about as well so yeah it was um but i'm I'm quite i'm quite entertained that you actually mentioned it because it's like the last thing on my linkedin profile all the way down the bottom so i'm very impressed
0: (laughs) uh yes as i've been listening and learning from and about you it really strikes me that you're an absolute polymath you've got interests and abilities everywhere and a restless curiosity and a deep interest in the world around you What's something that you haven't done yet or you haven't learned about yet that you want to do next?
2: Well, I'm not sure about what I want to do next, but I'm rubbish at maths so um i think that's something that i want to improve upon because i think i'm very confident with the spoken word and being able to think really broadly and ambiguously about ideas and and grapple with uncertainty that's really fun but god i'm i'm bad with numbers so i think going forward um and it is you know i'm thinking about where i want to move in the future in terms of career-wise and it's still very open but thinking about politics and public policy and it is important to be able to get your head around numbers and 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 statistics and all that kind of element and that's something that scares me to be quite honest because it's something that absolutely doesn't come naturally so I'd love to push myself a little bit in that space and and get at least a little bit better at least to be kind of familiar and comfortable with what's going on so that's kind of a side goal so I've enrolled in you know a finance course and we're just seeing how it goes.
1: Oh, good on you for that sorry that's you and me both Yasmin because uh, I have a real aversion to maths and and the irony is that uh, Eddie Wu who's on this particular coming up series uh, his publishers have just sent me his book about uh, the wonderful world of maths Wu's wonderful world of maths and I'm glad it has pictures in it because that's going to get me through it um... that's right I think <laughs> I
2: should recruit Eddie Wu if he ever needs any more He's so busy I just wish I had him as my teacher I think I think that would make me a lot less less fearful, but Eddie Wu is awesome. I remember when I went to parliament and um, I was standing in the lobby and I spotted this guy and I went, is that Eddie Wu? And I went over to him and I was such a nerd. I went, can I take a selfie with you, Eddie? And he was such a great guy. So that's awesome. You guys have him.
1: I'm pretty confident there's going to be um, many young women and men across Australia who are going to want to have selfies with you uh, into the future, Yasmin, and, and don't, don't be so humble about that. This has been a, such an enlightening conversation. In fact, there were times throughout today's conversation that I felt myself uh, getting a little emotional listening to you uh, about your story and that of your parents. You know, my, migrant stories are not uncommon, particularly in our country. And, and I feel that we continue to be very fortunate to be in a place that has allowed um, migrants to come in. But gee, we have such a long way to go for them to, to truly be seen uh, and heard and represented in a way that makes people feel they matter in, in a very deep, in, uh, inherent way. So I just want to say thank you very much. Thank you very much for for your preparedness to play in that space of vulnerability and to share so much of what burns inside of you and keeping the honour of your heritage alive and well. And for me, that says something to others that will follow to say, you know what? We have so much to be proud of and we also have so much to look forward to and i mentioned earlier in this conversation the statue of david and i want to finish with that kind of story of david where in some ways i feel david's story is your story and that ultimately that story is about a lesson around courage around faith and overcoming what seems impossible and and this statue and, and david's story are also reminders of me of the power of self-belief and the freedom of thought and expression. Heroic, both in its intent and its and its action. And today, Phil, we have been so blessed to have uh, an individual who is intentional in everything that she does, and backs it up with real action. And uh, I'm I couldn't be happier than than having you on this show. And I'm so excited about our listeners who are going to get to understand you a little bit more. And I'm looking forward to the day I can walk into a. Um, a polling booth and vote for you to become the Prime Minister of Australia.
2: Thank you so much. That's too kind. It's such a pleasure to be part of it and keep doing what you're doing.
0: Thanks, Yasmin. No pressure at all. That's Yasmin Paul. Good person. The Game Changers podcast is produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions. It's powered by a schoolfortomorrow.com and circle.education. It's available on Apple Podcasts, on SoundCloud, on Spotify and on Google. If you like what you hear, tell your friends, subscribe, like, you know what to do. Let's go.